Well, hello everyone. Uh, this is Rachel, of course, coming to you from Melbourne, Australia, with my special guest star, my weekly guest star, Matt. And we're coming to you with our latest episode of When Movies Were Good. And how are you going, Matt? We're still in this state of lockdown here in Melbourne. Yes, it is a very interesting time we live in, but it makes sure we focus on the important things in life, like family and movies. <laughs> Matt, family and movies, definitely. So we've got two good ones for you this week, two interesting ones. Uh, we do have a Burt Lancaster double for you. Now, I was saying to Matt when I suggested this that I'm Burt Lancaster is someone I've known since I could talk, but I've not actually ever sat down and really watched a lot of his films. I've watched some of his uh, there's been a couple of like biblical films I think he was in and trapeze and a few things like that. But some, a lot of his other films that he's well known for, um, I think like Elmer Gantry and a few of those, I haven't, I'm, I'm yet to see any of those. Have you seen much of Bert's work or? I can't think of much I've seen him in uh, these. I'm pretty sure these are my, um, these two films are my introduction to him. He wasn't in the Cecile B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, was he? No, I don't. No, he was in something like. Actually, let's just quickly look. I, I'm, I'm wanting to say it was something like the robe or something like that. It, it was another. Uh, let's have a look here. It was another sort of um, biblical film that he was in that was similar to the Ten Commandments. It was that kind of a thing. Um, so he was in the Crimson Pirate. He was in the Bird. Oh, Birdman of Alcatraz. I wouldn't mind seeing that. He was yeah. in the gunfight at the OK Corral. Yeah, I'm wanting to say there was a couple of other. He did a few other films with Tony Curtis as well. Um, he did several film noirs, but yep. there was there was another there was another film that he. Uh, I, I always get him and Kirk Douglas mixed up because Kirk Douglas um, was they in kind of look Spartacus and yeah, yeah, they kind of look like each other as well, don't they? They do. They have that sort of very similar look about them, and they actually made seven films together, Burt Lancaster and uh, Kirk Douglas, who recently passed away, and Burt Lancaster died in 1994. So uh, that could be something that we could look into in the future. But I'm, I'm always thinking of, Bert, of um, sorry, Kirk Douglas and Spartacus, so I'm, I'm probably that's why I'm always confusing Burt Lancaster with him. But we have two of, his, of Burt's very well-known films, from Here to Eternity, 1953, directed by Fred Zinnerman. And then we have The Sweet Smell of Success, which kind of piqued my interest because I'm a Tony Curtis fan, and that's 1957, uh, directed by Alexander McKendrick, who was an English director that came over to Hollywood when the English movie um, studios were having some issues. So wasn't it great back then where, hey, you've got some skills and you just come over to the States and just can't work? Not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, the narrative might have been a little different for some, but I, it is uh, it is nice to know that it, well, there was a time when you didn't quite have to have a certificate for every little thing you did. You probably yeah. need a certificate for making sandwiches these days. Yeah. yeah, well, here in Australia you do, for sure. And, um, yeah, but it was just, you know, you read these tales of these actors. I mean, even somebody like one of my favourite people, Ray Milland, who was originally from Wales and made a few films over in the, the UK and was like, yeah, I'm just going to move to Hollywood and just go and do it. And you could just, 
I don't know how they did it back then. I guess the immigration system was a lot more open and, you know, literally if you paid your passage there and you found a job, you could stay. Even now, I think they still have some sort of uh, specialty visa that allows um, actors to travel there on temporary work visas because it's it's probably happens uh, often enough that people need to travel to that region uh, just for um, short-term work. But it's, it's not like they're going there to pick fruit or something. Yeah, I think what happens is if you're an, a well-known actor from another country, like I think here, and a lot of American films are shot here in Australia, you get yourself an international agent, you go, if, if you've got a job booked in Los Angeles already, that's probably a helping hand. But I think that's kind of how they do it. They get an artistic visa off the basis that they have a unique skill that they're bringing with them from being known for things in in other theatrical things in other countries. I think I was reading um, actor, actor Alan Cumming, he, he did that. He basically yeah. was um, hired for a Broadway job or something on the basis that he was just so unique in that particular role. It was somebody like him that I was yeah. reading about. And I and I thought, oh, wow, that's, so that's how he did it. And apparently sometimes, especially on Broadway, they like to make a song and dance. Oh, why are you hiring someone from overseas sort of thing? But if you can kind of prove to them, I think, Essentially, um, when the original, not to get too far off the topic, but the original version of Phantom of the Opera came, Michael Crawford already had a working visa from when he worked on yeah. Hello, Dolly, or he was able to get the working visa again because he'd already worked in the US. But Sarah Brightman actually found it very hard to get the working visa to work on Broadway. And I think it wasn't until Andrew Lloyd Webber said, well, if she doesn't do the role, you're not getting the show, then they gave her the working visa. So there's that, that kind of thing. Well, I don't know if um, this was something uh, you'd have been interested in at the time, but a controversial thing about three, five years ago here when the Minister for Arts at the time, and even that portfolio has been taken away now, is um, they were trying to introduce this program called the Program for Excellence of the Arts, uh, which was uh, eventually knocked down by the industry because it kind of wanted to do what you were talking about from another perspective in that they wanted to focus on bringing in high profile uh, top entertainers and like singers for opera companies and and the like over mm-hmm. here and uh, sort of taking away a lot of uh, public funding for um, uh, homegrown training, which uh, yeah. uh, many people didn't feel was very um, fair yeah. and patriotic to the homegrown talent pool. And so that's why the program eventually got knocked back. Oh, okay. So they were they were probably thinking more in tourist dollars than um uh, than homegrown talent. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, bringing it back to the classic, you know, films, and and you know, we also have like Deborah Kerr in this film, and uh, in, in from Here to Eternity, which is the first Burt film that we'll be speaking about. And you sort of wonder how did these how did these people? But back then they just did they they just did it. Uh, and, um, you know, you think, how did Alfred Hitchcock get his start? You know, he was well-known in the UK. So he, he came over and he got offered a deal and he just did it. So you probably Alfred Hitchcock's, yeah. uh, Alfred Hitchcock's moving to Hollywood, though, wasn't taken uh, very lightly. Um, he had quite a reputation in the, the UK already. It, yes. Yes, it was... Um, that, that didn't necessarily mean that he was financially stable. He was still always playing... Um, uh, tennis with um uh, with his income uh yeah. not literally tennis like he was uh, being moved back and forth between studios yeah. like a tennis ball yeah yeah that's it but yeah it was it's definitely a different a different period now i think i guess things are done a lot differently so 
we'll jump into the first film. So from here to eternity. So this was actually film was based on a novel which only came out a few years before in 1951 by James Jones who also wrote a lot of novels based on either war or the army he also did the thin red line which also became a well-known film as well which I haven't actually seen but when I was looking through his catalogue of names of his novels I was like these actually a lot of these are quite familiar to me so it's amazing that they actually optioned the book quickly and had it made into into the film, although there's several, several differences between the book and the film. So just for the audience, just really briefly, if you haven't seen this one, it's a mixed story. And when I say that, it's about a different group, a disparate group of people and a group of soldiers primarily who are stationed in Oahu in Hawaii, so the main island of Hawaii, just before the big Pearl Harbor attack. So the, one of the protagonists, Pruitt, played by one of our favourite people, Montgomery Clift, who's in this cast with Bert, uh, he's a bugler and a boxer and he refuses to be on the fight team because he's wounded a man um, previously and he doesn't want to have a bar of it and that sets off a chain of consequences for him in the company. Uh, and basically all these officers seem to be grappling with the sadness and brutality of not only their own lives but of being in the army as well. So we've got Burt Lancaster, we've got Montgomery Cliff, we've got Deborah Kerr, we've got Frank Sinatra, Donna Reed, who is linked to one of my favourite people, more about that later on, and the great Ernest Borgnine. So directed by Fred Zinnemann, who we know from um, High Noon. He also directed Oklahoma and several other really well-known films. Um, and we, yeah, an interesting film. Matt, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on this movie? I thought it was a, a great storyline and I really appreciated some of the major cast members. Quite often when I'm, I'm the type that when I hear that a film has a lot of uh, major names in it, I get skeptical because I think they're writing on the acting, acting names to, um, rather than the story, but no, I uh, uh, really felt um, engaged. It was a sort of storyline that we all have an emotional stake in because there's kind of a person to relate with or at least to want to be. I found myself wanting to be Burt Lancaster's character a lot, although in reality I'm probably a lot more like the man who controlled the supply room and always had a snack bar at hand. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, that's the unfortunate reality. Uh, what I found... Uh, interesting about Deborah Kerr's role was that for ages I'd only seen her in The King and I mm -hmm. where she plays this Victorian school teacher and so when I suddenly see her as this platinum blonde uh, walking gracefully through the barracks I keep expecting her to chastise Yul Brynner for bad manners or something. <laughs> yeah I um I, she's actually in another one of my favorite um I guess you could say it's a classic film. I believe it's, it was made in the early 60s and that was an affair to remember. And that one was made, yeah. I want to say Cary Grant was her male lead in that. And uh, I yes, really like that. Yes, um, That's another one I saw more uh, more recently. Yeah, I, I always really remember an affair to, oh, no, sorry, 1957. I actually remember that one and I always enjoyed I always enjoyed that film. It's just a bit corny and everything, but I always thought it was very a very nice little romantic film. So, I reckon the cruise industry was kept alive by movies <laughs> like those for a long time. They yeah, all wanted I mean, to find love that way. Yeah, definitely. It was a very beautiful film, and this was a very beautiful film. I'm not sure whether it would have worked better in colour or black and white. Do you have any thoughts on 
on it, especially the, the famous beach scene. Do you feel that the black and white work well for the film? I don't really see... Uh, in, in many ways, it's almost a bit of a film noir because it has um, the those moral um, characters that are uh, trying to survive hardship in a, in a sinister world and there are so many dark elements like it when Sinatra's dealing with that brutality of beating which is a bit ironic because I, from what I hear in real life Sinatra was the one with the temper yes <laughs> and apparently Ava Gardner apparently Ava, he really campaigned for the role in Ava Gardner his, I believe his then wife wanted to get him into this role for some reason because it is a supporting role. It's not like it's the lead role in the film, but nonetheless well, a very emotional role. Well, this was actually at a time for Sinatra when he was uh, kind of um, crawling on all fours because he was at quite a low in his career. It was uh, in an inter awkward intermediate period because he'd started out as this uh, teen singer idol in the early to mid-40s and like... Like every pop star whose major audience is a lot of young women, your audience gets older, and yeah. uh, it can be hard to make an adjustment. And also there were ac accusations of him being involved in mob violence. From what I understand of that, it seems to be more the case that he just simply liked um, being photographed in situations where he could pretend to be one of the, the tough guys. He, I think he... Uh, like to pretend to, uh, or one of these, he, he probably liked uh, taking on stereotypes because of his uh, heritage and wanted to be associated with that sort of uh, tough gangster mentality, and that might have been a bit damaging for him in the long run. So was the Brat Pack? Uh, was the Brat Pack going at this point? Was he already in the Brat Pack at that point? I'll just actually have a look at that. You know that sort of group of actors that he hung around with. Well, I Brat think Pack. Robin and the Seven Hoods would have come out about that time, or maybe a couple of years afterwards. But this was quite a shift in a uh, time for Sinatra because it was one of the first roles that marked a bit of a comeback for him, and he was also at a similar time in Young at Heart, where he uh, also played that lonely crooner by the piano so he was really reforming himself it was kind of only in the uh, mid 50s to later 50s that he took on the legendary singer status that we're more familiar with him with uh, at that time it really was this uh, more or less a washed up celebrity i'm um, making a comeback Actually, sorry, for the audience, the Brat Pack was the group of actors that hung around together in the 80s. Sorry, I'm getting my eras mixed up. The Rat Pack was the one that Frank Sinatra was involved with. Yes, so, as Lauren Bacall um, uh, efficiently put it, they, their job was to drink bourbon all night. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. So oh, they're sort of saying here on the research that it's the early 60s, but... I'm sure they all would have known each other in the late 50s. So this um, film that was made was just after that. So if we bring the conversation back to Bert, who is, well, I don't know, I guess he's kind of the joint lead in this film, the joint male lead. Uh, he had a very imposing presence from what I've researched about Bert Lancaster. He was very, you know, you knew he was on the set and that actually plays more into the second film we'll discuss. Sweet Smell well, he was set. a giant. Yeah, he was literally a giant, but apparently he was just very intimidating anyway, just as a person and as an actor on the set. So, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure, like, 
I don't know. I suppose because I'm interested in writing things myself, I'm always thinking about how, how would I do this story. And for me, I think there was just, I understand that this um, film is based on a book. And as we know in books, you can just generally, you know this yourself as a writer, you can yeah. just explain a lot more in a book. You can have a lot more in a book. You can have different stories going at different times. And sometimes in a film, it can get all a bit busy. And I, I think maybe the film would have done a bit better if it had concentrated on perhaps one of these relationships and had some of the other members of the cast more as the supporting tragic members. It just got a – I was actually reading somebody else's blog about this film and what they thought of it, and that's what they were kind of saying too. So it's not that I didn't like it. I just sort of felt I either want to concentrate on Montgomery or I either want to concentrate on Bert and Deborah or I either want to concentrate on Frank – and it just seemed it was a bit too, even though they kind of pulled it back nicely together at the end, I just felt like I wasn't getting enough of each one of the couples. Like I didn't see enough of Donna Reed. I, I didn't see enough of Ernest Borgnine. But then it, seeing more of them wouldn't have worked in the film the way it was. But, but you thought it was all right? You didn't have a problem with that? or? Well, I get what you're saying. Like as hard as it is to believe, that um, famous beach scene that actually came to part in the film where I'd actually forgotten about uh, Bert Lancaster and Deborah Kerr's relationship, and I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah oh yeah, they're um they're canoodling behind the yes. scenes." Yes. And uh, <laughs> so it, it it is a surprise that that famous scene that I'd actually forgotten about the relationship and the plot that led to it. And yes, you're right. There are quite a number of plot lines, and uh, that's an example of how they can uh, sometimes uh be a little um too far apart that you need to be um reminded that they're together but i like i'm very uh, i feel myself very emotionally tied to all of them and so it's just done well enough that i can forgive um if the plot was a little too stretched out at times yeah i mean it's it's you know it's it's very hard to strike that balance where somebody else might say it and they're happy with all the little sketches that you get of the different things that are going on. I suppose I really, I'm, I like the most simplistic sort of plots where you just start somewhere and finish somewhere and there's not too many other people involved in it and that's, always, that's not always going to be possible in a lot of films because they're trying to tell a wider pitched story. But look, the film when it came out was very well received and it won a whole mm. swag of Academy Awards not surprised. Uh, and, it, yeah, I mean, for such a sort of, yeah, I mean, the film had different elements. It had the romance. It had the real tragedy. But everyone was living. I mean, that final scene on the ship when Donna Reed and Deborah Kerr are leaving, I mean, that's quite tragic. I mean, their lives are really, and that's in the backdrop of Pearl Harbor and all the decimation that that would, that, that that would bring with it. Uh, and, I, yeah, I was surprised to see that Donna Reed had actually won an Academy Award for that. I would have thought, uh, I know, I know, Deborah Kerr and all that were nominated as well, but she was actually the one that won the the Academy Award for that. And what's my other piece of information, Matt? She played she was the recast of Miss Ellie in Dallas in the nineteen eighties. So she played Larry Hagman's mother. Because the I, audience I, I knows that. I can't believe how many connections you've made to Dallas over the <laughs> over all the episodes. Because the audience knows I have to be able to link it back to Dallas. And so far, I think every episode in some weird, strange way, I have been able to. But unfortunately, 
So Barbara Bell Geddes, the other, other very famous classic um, film actress in her own right, was the original Miss Ellie, yeah. and then she actually had a heart condition. They really needed to have Miss Ellie stay in the show, so Donna put her hand up for it. I don't know why. And she did, and she played Miss Ellie very, very differently to Barbara Bell Geddes, and she was on the show for a year. I didn't mind her in the role. I thought she was okay. I preferred Barbara Bell Geddes, but I, I didn't have a problem, but apparently somebody wasn't too happy about it and was like sort of in the scenes was kind of like mm, sort of thing and you can kind of tell and then eventually he got on the phone and persuaded Barbara Bell. I think, well, he was one of the people that persuaded Barbara Bell Geddes when she was feeling better after her operation to come back into the role, which she did. And I did feel, and I don't think Donna Reed was treated very well. It's not her fault she wasn't Barbara Bell Geddes. I mean, geez, you know. So it, that's it kind my of reminds Dallas me story. Of the mother, the changeover of the actors for the mother in The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was sometimes it's good to do a recast. Sometimes it's not, especially if the original actor or actress might be able to come back into the role. So that was my little sidebar there. But getting back onto it. Uh, I thought the film was beautiful. I love anything set in Hawaii. I love Montgomery Clift. Yeah. I'm interested to see more of Bert's other films. I don't think this film of his, for me, quite did it. I didn't feel like there was enough depth in the character. There probably was in the book, just maybe not his character of Warden. I don't think there was enough here in this film for me to see him. I think Ernest Borgnine's awesome. And what are your final thoughts on it? Well, I think it shows a lot of the politics and infighting that you can have in a large group uh, that are stuck in a confined headquarters and we may think of uh, something like the army or the armed forces as a very one-dimensional element uh, with a specific task in mind but in between wars it can uh, implode on itself and I think this shows some of the reality of um, what it can be like for people to work together and That's as far right. as Burt Lancaster as well, uh, uh, yeah, uh, fine. Uh, I understand it if it um, may not have fleshed out his role enough. But if I were, to, if I had gone down the path of being the armed forces, he's the sort of soldier I'd have wanted to be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it was it was good to see it. It was good to see that scene, and it was finally because the the film is mentioned a lot by other people, and it's just even the title of it is so epic. It's I think it's originally from a, I want to say a Rudyard Kipling play, uh, Kipling, sorry, yeah. poem. So it's just... It, it seems very... appropriate. It seems appropriate that someone like Kipling would bring that story about. Yeah. I think a lot of, I think a lot of people that would probably go into that movie um, uh, with a sort of stereotypical affair to remember type romance in mind just because of the beach scene. Uh, but yes. it, it, it kind of... Um, uh, it, it sort of almost uh, matches more the taste of somebody who'd like something like 12 Angry Men. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, because it definitely had its dark, dark moments. And with Montgomery Clift, it's always got to have that brooding sort of <laughs> element to it. So uh, we'll go over into our second film, uh, Sweet Smell of Success, 1957. So this film was directed, as we were talking about, the English director that came over and worked, Alexander McKendrick, written by Ernest Lehman and Clifford Odette. So Clifford Odette came in to do the rewrites on it because yeah. Ernest Lehman couldn't finish it. It was due, either due to illness or another factor. I didn't realise that Ernest Lehman's actually written some of some great films that I've seen, North by Northwest and Family Plot. Those are two that you would love. And he wrote The Sound of Music as well. 
Was was he like, one of oh. the guys that got in trouble with the blacklist? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, I'm wanting to say he did, and that's why the other guy came in. But the other guy, Clifford Odets, was very slow. Apparently, it finished. he was supposed to finish off the script or polish it in, in a couple of weeks, and four months later, they were still trying to get the script off him. And then apparently Alexander McKendrick was very fastidious about everything and then with Burt Lancaster involved in the production side of it too, it all got a bit hard, I think. So I think at the time, everybody who worked on this film, from what I understand, wasn't overly happy with it. And one of the elements is, so we've got obviously Burt Lancaster in this film playing Hunsecker. We've got Tony Curtis playing Falco. We've got Sarah Harrison, who only recently passed away. She was playing the sister Susan. She was primarily a TV actress yeah. and then kind of went off and had a family and retired. So this was kind you of one of You sort of get the, that feel about her and yeah. the way she acts to the screen. Yeah, she sort of, yeah, she was primarily like episodic TV from the 50s and 60s. I believe she sort of worked up to that point and then just sort of I want to do the family thing and just sort of retired, which a lot of young actresses did. They had a couple of really big, well-known roles and then no more. And then we had Martin Milner who played Steve Dallas, who was the, the, the you know, the boyfriend that they wanted to get rid of. We will just quickly recap the uh, plot quickly as well. But he went on to TV and he was in several well-known things, Route 66, which I've heard of, I haven't seen it, and Adam 12, which I've seen a few episodes of. So those were episodic TV. Route 66, actually, for those out there who are interested in really good episodic TV, was basically about a group a, a group of brothers going on Route 66 all over the country. And apparently um, Steve Martin Milner, sorry, got to travel all over the country shooting that TV show. So I might see if there's some, it's more of an anthology sort of drama, I think, sort of an episodic one, but that might actually be interesting to see. I'd only ever heard about that show and I'd never actually seen it in Adam 12 as sort of like a more police detective drama. But we'll quickly recap for the audience and then I'll get Matt to come in on this one. So just briefly, because there's a lot happening in this plot as well, it, it's simple but there's a lot going on too. So Han Secker, which is Bert's character, is a well-known columnist and Tony Curtis is playing Falco, who's a, a sort of a wannabe, I guess, press agent. I guess he's doing well enough to get by. And basically over the course of a night in the hustle and bustle of, of New York City, they play a game of power and survival, which was outlined in the basic plot. So basically Hunsecker wants to use his connections, including Falco, to ruin his sister's relationship with an up-and-coming musician who, who's played uh, by Martin Milner. So they both eventually kind of get what they want, but it backfires on them at the same time as well. And we see this sort of, I guess, would you say it took place in real time over the course of this night? or? Yeah, it's almost a bit like High Noon in the way it follows yeah. that similar pathway. Right. Now, I know you would love this film just off the basis of where this film is set. This is right up your alley. <laughs> Yes, um, I dream of a rent-controlled apartment in Upper Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, when I saw it, I mean, that's um, the aspect. Make, make, that, make that middle Upper Manhattan. Middle. Uh, <laughs> uh, I prefer to not go beyond 128th Street. Oh, okay. I kind of see myself more on Long Island if I was going to be living in that area of um, Oh, America. you suburbanite. <laughs> I see myself a bit more at Valley Stream or something on Long, on Long Island, but that's not a far commute from to get back into Manhattan. So this is, um, I don't know, this is one of these films where I sat there and I thought, right, if I was writing this film, 
I would have made it just a lot more simpler. I think there were a lot of characters coming in and out of the story and I, some, I'm, I wouldn't say I got confused. I'm like, hang on, who's that person again? And who's, oh, yeah, this guy's connected with this guy this way. But what I did like is this very odd relationship that Burt Lancaster's character had with his sister, this obsessional sort of relationship, he, like he's going to yeah. go on a cruise, cruise with her and all this sort of stuff. So what did you say? So, uh, okay, so you loved where the film was set, but what's your, what did you actually think about the film? Well, you're right. The plot is extremely complicated, but it's a, a bit in the vein of uh, ones like the Maltese Falcon and the Big Sleep where you forgive the complicated plot just because you love all the brilliant, witty dialogue. And it would, unlike a film noir, a, a more conventional film noir that has more of the detective uh, shoot-ups, this sort of backstabbing plot has plenty of extra wit to spare. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I understand. I just thought there were just too many elements in it. So I loved where it was set. I loved the way Burt Lancaster looked. Apparently those glasses were his glasses. He actually used some of his own... own and apparently they work. rubbed Vaseline on it or something to make his eyes go out of focus a bit. Yeah, I that's why I was reading that. I think that's a technique that probably wouldn't work so well these days just because you have the high-definition cameras and you can just... Like, a, I can see a, a drink these days, and I know what blend of tea they're using. It probably wouldn't, it probably wouldn't work so well these days. Yes, uh, but I think black and white definitely suited this film. I, I, whereas I think From Here to Eternity could have lent itself to being in colour, but this film, just with the beach and where that was set, but I, this film, I loved it in black and white. I, yeah, I just... I don't know, I kept thinking, if I was doing this, but of course you can't keep saying that. It's based on a novella, I believe. So they've got to, maybe also because there was somebody coming in helping with rewrites, maybe it got a bit out of control that way. But Maybe. It's... Ma yeah, it is what yeah. it is. So I just, I mean, I'm a big Tony Curtis fan, so I will literally sit through anything with Tony Curtis in it. I really liked him in this. This was a departure for him given the stage of where his career was at at that point. Uh, apparently Universal didn't want Curtis to play Falco due to his image. And one of the things that kind of worked against the film was the audience was expecting Tony Curtis to be one way in the film and then he played this quite sleazy sort of, you know, self-centred character who was on the take sort of thing himself, even yeah. though he was partially sinned against too. But the audience, apparently the females in the audience at the time actually recoiled watching. So The Sweet Smell of Success is one of those films that didn't do too well when it came out, unlike From Here to Eternity, which really did very well when it came out. But as time has gone on, it's become one of these cult, these cult classics. And I did like the ending of the film. I thought that was quite good. Yeah. Um, and... I liked what everyone did in the film. It just, there was, again, it was a few, it, like you said, with the Maltese Falcon and the Big Sleep, that was the one that we watched. Just a few too many things going on for me, which took it away a little bit, but not, not bad, just I would have liked a bit more simpler plot line. Yeah, and it, as far as Tony Curtis goes, it would be a fascinating research into audience psychology. So, who knows, maybe there's some psychology or film student wanting to get their PhD organised, maybe this could be some inspiration, but <laughs> it's a similar situation of how we see 
the character of Tony Curtis, he's used to being this, or the the actor of Tony Curtis, he's used to being this uh, lovable character, and he goes to this much more sleazy person. And at the within a very similar time frame, within about five years, you also have um, the Norman Bates character, which is also casting against Typha Anthony Perkins, and so that was a what. A, and a casting against type that really worked, but in Tony Curtis's case uh, for this film, it didn't. And so maybe it's because in Tony Curtis's um, character uh, as Falco, he is knowingly being a bad person, whereas Perkins' character, it's kind of like he doesn't quite know. It's kind of a clash of personality, and so maybe there's a bit of a uh, a, a bit of a psychological tweak in how the audience. Uh, relates or doesn't relate with that sort of person so uh future phd candidate uh, whoever <laughs> hears this um uh, you can use that idea just to give me a little footnote will you yeah <laughs> yeah it's um it's actually interesting because then after a lot like you um sort of compared tony curtis in this film to anthony perkins in psycho and it's interesting to see which way their careers went after they did these films that kind of set them up you know set them apart because Tony Curtis after he did this and he wanted to do this because he wanted to start playing these deeper yeah. darker roles he actually did some really good work in the 60s there's a film of his that I do want to watch again I've seen part of it the defiant ones and he did that one I believe it was in let me just quickly look it up here the defiant Great. Farouk is the only one I'd seen Tony Curtis in. It was Paris when it sizzles, when he's Audrey Hepburn's weird French boyfriend. <laughs> and uh, so I kind of had a, a bit of a distorted introduction to him. Yeah, and also once he gets... Actually, you can make this case for both him and Tony Perkins, but once they kind of get into the late 60s and the 70s and the 80s, the careers really start getting out there. Lots of B-grade films. I guess they kept working right until the end, but... Uh, lots of be actually my sister put me onto a Tony Curtis film. She goes, you need to watch it. It's called The Manitou about this woman that's got this thing growing outside of her body. And I okay. just saw the, the <laughs> I just saw the trailer to it and I was like, wow, okay. Actually he did the Defiant Ones with Sydney Pointier one yeah. year, one year later. And that was a huge role for him. So that was the film where two escape prisoners, one white and one black. So that that's you know a bit avant-garde oh, yeah. for that time. Who are shackled together who must cooperate in order to survive that could be one that we might do somewhere down the track uh but that that was a great film for him and for sydney Poitier as well so mm. so it's it, it is interesting and but i mean the music in the film like El, the great elmer bernstein did the film you know he did the ten commandments to kill a mockingbird robert vaughan was originally uh touted to play the Martin Milner character, but he was drafted into the army, so he wasn't able to do it. So he might have been, and he, you know, I, I like Robert Vaughan. I've got a lot of time for him. And then, of course, one of your favourites, the great Orson Welles, was considered originally for Burt Lancaster's role, and I think he would have been great too. Yeah, and I could have much more imagine Orson Welles as uh, somebody, the type of person who would only have his younger sister as a family relation left <laughs> in his life. Yeah, that's true. So once again, I've got mixed feelings about Sweet Smell of Success. I loved, like with him from here to eternity, I love parts of it. And then, but for me, I really like to get involved with one character. Uh, and that's maybe a bit of a, 
you know, a bit of a block that I have with certain films. If there's too much going on, I'm like, no. But if I'm really kind of concentrating on one person's journey, even if it flips on to somebody else and they keep going for the rest of the film, I'm, I'm much more into that sort of thing. So, again, it's just a personal personal preference. Anything you want to say in, in to, to wrap these ones up, Matt? Well, um, still with Sweet Smell's success, perhaps I'm a little too poetic in my thinking at times, but this glitzy show New York with the corrupt journalism and almost a Capitol Hill type activity. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, it almost, uh, with that bright uh, jazz uh, music, it almost uh, seems to be a, a kind of a precursor showing the house of cards before the toppling that we see the more underbelly type New York uh, 20 years later in films like Taxi Driver. It just seemed to, the, I mean, it helps that it's the same location, but it, seem to be uh, almost before to the after picture for me. Yeah, there's definitely, yeah, and with what's going on in the world now with the state of journalism, there's definitely a relevance for the film yeah. in, in today's, and, it, you know, everyone that sort of was reviewing it online and stuff had a lot of time for the film. So, again, that type of, if you like, that dark sort of, you know, noir and the guys in the trench coats and the jazz music at New York City, you'll love it. If you like a big, more sweeping with romance, with heartache, with, you know, the good guys and bad guys from here to eternity would be a good one. So definitely, you know, see what you think about it and check it out to our audience. It so goes we'll to show that, I was going to say, it, it just goes to show that there's never been a golden age of um, pure journalism. I mean, these days journalists can't make a living. Back then, a lot of journalists couldn't be honest. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Um, yeah, so two really interesting and very different films and Burt Lancaster played very different roles in each. And I th thought he did a good job. I'm looking forward to seeing some of his more epic sort of dramas. There's one I do want to see of his, which is, I want to say, Alma Gantry, which uh, uh, was where he plays that preacher. And Shirley Jones won an Academy. That was 1960. So that film was actually up against Psycho in some of the some of the Academy Awards categories. So, yeah, about a, about a con man and a female evangelist selling religion to small-town America. That would, that would actually be – it's a little bit outside of our scope of when we talk about films, but we might even just put some information on, on it on our social media. So, Matt, we're doing – we are doing an Ingrid Bergman double next yes. time. We are doing the 1942 – oh, my gosh, this is this is it. Am I going to start singing the song? Not, not yet. I might have to sing it. I might have to sing it next week. You, you don't have um, a choice. It'll happen. <laughs> well, Casablanca. We're going to we're going to do Casablanca. And look, I'm sure there's other people who have done you know massive big reviews of it and gone into this. We're going to give our thoughts and our discussion on it in our unique perspective. But we're going to share it with another one of Igor Bergman's films, which is one I've wanted to see for a while. Matt's got his reason why he wants to see it. But gaslight, which is a term that a lot of people use now, and it is apparently originally from this film and play and this storyline where the husband tries to do a few, you know, bad things to the wife and gaslight the wife, and that's something that we and that was so the first ones and that one was directed by George Cooker, who, who I'm a fan of. So, so are you looking yeah, he, forward to those two? Yeah, 
very excited. I mean, on, honestly, uh, it's the chance to talk about um, Casablanca that I think would pull many uh, people into uh, <laughs> a, a classic movie uh, podcast like we have. It's yeah. a, a great story. I've watched it many times, and I hardly need an excuse to watch it again. <laughs> yeah, I watched I've been it looking for the first time. Yeah. I've been looking forward to Gaslight for a long time uh, to see that as well, because it actually has a young Angela Lansbury in it. Not a big part, but it uh, is of interest to somebody who, like many born after about 1960, mainly knew Angela Lansbury as a Murder, She Wrote person. Murder, She Wrote. Well, that's what I remember her from. But I did, I did know that she did have quite a long career before that. But it's, it's just great. I love how some of these classic film actors had careers going in the 1980s as well, which I... Absolutely. Well, te- technically, loved. she's actually still working. I think she was yeah. in um, she was in a Broadway play about three years ago. I think. Yeah. No, she's got amazing longevity, and it just goes to show if you love what you do and you've got a bit of health about you, then you can just keep going and you can have that energy till the to the end, right up to the end of your life. Which I love seeing stories about like people like her. So. We're going to be doing Gaslight and Casablanca next week. Sorry, we did ramble on a few other topics, but I think it's because, you know, when you're in the fourth month of lockdown, uh, yeah, (laughs) any chance to have a discussion about anything. So thanks for putting up with us today. We appreciate it. We'll try to be a bit more on time next week. So, Matt, just quickly, where can everyone find us? As always, you can see us on Instagram at When Movies Were Good. We also have our YouTube channel. Obviously, that's what you're listening on right now, I assume. So you can always tap subscribe at the bell notification and you'll hear about our new content. And, oh, we have Twitter as well. Yeah, and we have our Facebook page too. So we're starting to get a few more things happening on each of those pages. So um, so stick with us while we're just trying to get things built up a bit more. But as always, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. And we'll see you on the next one. Thanks, guys, and take care.